Heavenly Father, this is a very weighty passage. As we look at the future, we see that there are not many right paths to you. There is one right path, which is the Lord Jesus Himself, who is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one, no one comes to you, Father, except through your Son, our Lord Jesus. This is not a message that is well received by our culture or by our world at large across the globe. But Lord, it is true and it is urgently needed. God, I pray for anyone under the sound of my voice today who is at this moment on the wrong path. And I I have no doubt that in this room there are a plurality of people known to you who in this very moment, perhaps not even fully cognizant of the fact, are on the broad way that leads to destruction. God, I pray that you would awaken those individuals even now as we look at this passage and that you would bring about a deep sense of urgency to get out of the state of lostness and to come into the state of grace, to come out of the state of sin and to come under the salvation and the righteousness of Jesus. God, for those who at least appear to be on the narrow path that leads to life, but are weary, spiritually exhausted, feel like they are running on fumes, I pray that you would renew the strength for all of us, God, and that you would help us not to grow weary and lose heart, for we will reap a harvest if we will not give up. So encourage us, warn us, and help us to feel the weight of these words, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Tonight at community groups, we'll be discussing this very passage, and I've included some questions for that in our church group me. So if you're on the church group me, you can access those questions tonight for your groups. I've got four points to my message. I'll just tell you at the front, these are not original to me. In fact, multiple people have made these same four points because they're so evident when you read this passage. So here are my four points. They're pretty simple. Number one, two gates. Number two, two ways. Number three, two crowds. And number four, two destinies. Couldn't be any clearer in this passage. Those are the four things that we're talking about. We've got two gates, two ways, two crowds, and we have two, two destinies. Uh, theologian Don Carson, who wrote a commentary on Matthew, said this, quote, it is true, of course, that no man enters the kingdom because of his obedience. But it is equally true that no man enters the kingdom who is not obedient. It is true that men are saved by God's grace grace through faith in Christ, but it is equally true that God's grace in a man's life inevitably results in obedience. So from the get-go, from the start, I want to be clear, nothing I am saying today is teaching salvation by works. But if you don't listen carefully, you might at times think Jesus is saying that. That's not what He's saying. What He's saying is, for those who truly know Him, there is going to be a transformation of life that will necessarily follow meeting the Lord Jesus. So point number one, two gates. 
Let me read the passage again. It is so brief, I'll read it several times today. Matthew 7, 13. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, or some translations broad, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard, or some translations compressed, constricted, narrow. It's the word normally used for affliction, to be pressed in and afflicted. The way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So we have two gates. The first gate, the gate to the broad path, the wide gate, this gate is something that we all enter just upon natural birth in this world. We are born on the broad road. We are born entering in through the broad gate. All of us, by nature, fallen in Adam because of original sin, we are born dead in sin. Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We are born entering by the broad gate. We are born on the broad or easy path. Romans 3 says this, right before Paul gets to the clarity of the gospel, he has that bad news of, this, of sin, and he says this, Romans 3.10, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, all, all have turned aside, and together they have become worthless, no one does good, not even one. So if we are born entering by the broad gate, entering in the broad path where the crowd is, where it's popular, how do we get through the narrow gate and onto the narrow way? Well, that happens not by physical birth, but by supernatural rebirth, by being born again from above. Let me quote Matthew Henry from hundreds of years ago. I'm sure many of you know and love Matthew Henry's commentary. He says, quote, conversion and regeneration are the gate, the narrow gate. That's conversion. Uh, by which we enter into this way in which we begin a life of faith in serious godliness. It's out of a state of sin and into a state of grace that we must pass by the new birth. And the gate itself, in a sense, is Jesus. I don't want to push the analogy too far. I realize we're working with an analogy. It's not exact in, in, in every way. Analogies are like that. But still, Jesus says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will go in and out and find pasture. There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. Or Acts 4.12, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved except the name of Jesus. So there is, on the, on the path to life, there is one entry point. This is narrow. The gospel is narrow. There is one entry point. It is the Lord Jesus. He is the way and the truth and the life. And we must enter by the Lord Jesus into life. Now, in the evangelical church in our country, we have had a tendency to make things not as narrow as Jesus makes them in this passage. We have oftentimes made conversion or the new birth sound 
like something other than what it really is. Here's what I mean. We've actually made the entry point broad in evangelicalism, broader than it actually is in reality. What we've said is, if you've ever felt guilt over sin, which who living hasn't felt guilt in their life over something they've done? If you felt guilt, that's, that's conviction, and perhaps it is. Well, here's what you need to do. If you want to spend eternity in heaven versus spending eternity in hell, you need to walk this aisle, come to the front. You need to kneel down. You need to pray this prayer. Jesus, I've sinned. You died for my sins. Please come into my heart. Please save me. And then if you've prayed that prayer, we can tell you with absolute certainty that you have been born again. You are a new creature in Christ. You are a new creation. And what you need to do is you need to open up your Bible and you need to write down the date and the time in which this happened. And if you are ever tempted for the rest of your life to doubt that you are a genuinely born-again person, open your Bible up, find where you wrote the date and time down, and never again doubt that you are born again because you prayed the prayer. You walked the aisle. You met with someone up in front, maybe a pastor, and you prayed over there to the side, and you are for sure born again. And once saved, always saved, you will never, ever question your salvation ever again. Now, here's the problem with that. I prayed the prayer and was not born again. Many of you have told me your story. You've prayed the prayer. We're baptized, maybe joined a church, and we're not yet truly born again. Have we made the gate more broad than Jesus made it? See, what Jesus is asking for is the real thing. See, in cultural Christianity, this is my opinion, I think it is correct, we have an appropriate love for others. We can't stand the thought of someone being lost, which is a wonderful feeling. To, to, to feel that agony of soul is a good thing, that someone be saved. But we've made it to where we so can't stand the thought of a child being lost or of a friend being lost, or a relative being lost. We, we, we so can't tolerate that feeling that we have made conversion easier than Jesus made it, so that we don't have to feel bad about people being lost because we don't think they are. They prayed the prayer. They were baptized. They, they have entered in. But Jesus says, no, actually, this is a narrow entryway. I want you to turn with me to Luke, to your right, Luke chapter 13. The passage where Jesus speaks in a similar way, although it is different, certainly, but it's similar in some ways to our current passage. Luke chapter 13. I've always found this to be a very challenging passage. Luke 13, verse 22. Remember, Jesus in Luke, from chapter 9 on, He is journeying towards Jerusalem. He is moving the whole time from Luke 9 all the way to the end of Luke. What's He doing? He's moving towards the cross. He is on this long journey to Jerusalem. That's how Luke structures His gospel. Luke 13, still on the way to Jerusalem, verse 22, Jesus went on His way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to Him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, strive, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, 
all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out, and people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Now, look back here. This, this, this person says, Lord, how, will only a few be saved? Look at verse 24. Jesus doesn't give the answer. He doesn't say yes or no, although in Matthew he does tell us it's a few. But here he doesn't give an answer. Jesus, if you notice this, Jesus doesn't spend a lot of time with hypotheticals. When you ask Jesus a hypothetical question, like how many will be saved, kind of an up-in-the-air question, what does he do? He turns it to personal application immediately. He doesn't want you to relax with the idea of, okay, I can figure out the answer and move on. No, he immediately turns the question and says, will you be one of the saved? And look what he says, verse 24, strive, agonize to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now listen, are the people who are not able to enter, are they familiar with Jesus in this text? Lord, you ate and drank in our cities. We talked to you. We knew you. See, here is what Jesus is saying. On the final day, there will be, I imagine that, I don't want to exaggerate. I imagine that there will be hundreds of thousands of people on the final day of judgment who went to church their whole lives, baptized members of churches, prayed the prayer, had Bibles, knew their Bible relatively well, may have taught Sunday school classes, led Bible studies, whatever it may be, helped with their youth group, and they will stand before the Lord, and the Lord will say, is there evidence of a genuine transformation of your nature, that you went from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to God, from dead in sin to truly alive in Christ? Was there a hunger for the things of Christ? within, not from without, from social pressure? Was there an actual love for the things of the Lord in your affections, in your desires, in your longings that shaped you and changed your life permanently? Not the trappings of Christianity. My goodness, I think there will be hundreds of thousands who will say, Lord, what are you talking about? You don't know me. I led Bible study in my home. I read your word. I did all these things. And the Lord says, your heart was far from me. In vain did you worship me. The Lord will look at many and say, it says here, many, I tell you, will seek to enter and not be able. Jesus is giving a warning. And listen, when that day comes, it will be too late to figure things out. The door will be shut at that time and it will be locked on the inside and there will be no access point. You see it right there in this text. Look with me. At verse 25 again, when once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you will begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. And he says, I do not know where you came from. Salvation, the door of salvation is open today. It it is wide open. New birth is available by God's Spirit right now. Forgiveness of sins is available right now, freely. Anyone who desires can take the water of life without payment because Jesus paid it all. In this moment is the day of salvation. Today is the day. 
But listen, there is coming a day where the door on the ark is going to close and there is no longer an access point for salvation. There's coming a day where the free offer of the gospel will no longer be available. The door that Jesus has wide open, the door of mercy that he has flung open for sinners, all by grace, all for his glory, all for our good, is freely accessible right now. All we must do is turn from loving sin and self and turn to loving Christ, truly entrusting ourselves to him and his finished work. And in that moment, we walk through the door of salvation like the doors of paradise. I think of Martin Luther as he was working with his Greek text in the 15-teens. He had his Greek text of Romans. And with his Catholic upbringing, he could not understand the basic gospel message. And he said, I had Romans 1, 16 and 17 out in front of him. And he said, I beat importunately upon the Greek of Romans 1. And I could not understand what it meant that the righteousness of God is given us in Christ by faith. I couldn't grasp the meaning. He says, so I beat constantly upon the Greek of Romans 1.16 until the meaning became clear and the meaning gave way. And he said, when I realized that the gospel was saying that I can be clothed in the imputed righteousness of Jesus and I can be justified freely in his sight all by faith apart from works, he said, it was as though the doors of paradise opened and I walked freely through. That door of salvation is wide open right now. But there is coming a day where the Lord Jesus will close that door and there will be many people shocked that they are not given access. And they will pound at the door. And look at verse 28. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. Let's turn back to Matthew chapter 7. So we have two gates, and the gate of salvation is the gate of Jesus. It is the gate of mercy, but it is not a gate that will be open forever, but it is open right now. You know, I know even mentioning this sermon, people have strong opinions, I'm sure. Jonathan Edwards preached an infamous sermon, probably the most famous sermon in American history. You know the name of it. You probably read a paragraph of it in high school, in your English literature class showing you how crazy all the Puritans were in their preaching. And you probably read a paragraph from sinners in the hands of an angry God. Now, that's not the only kind of sermon that Edwards preached or the Puritans preached, but Edwards did preach a, a number of sermons on hell that are unlike anything you will read written today. My goodness. And by the way, I'll just say you'll be hard-pressed to find almost anything in that sermon that is not from the Bible. I'm not kidding you. But let me say a word about that. Jonathan Edwards preached that at his home church in Massachusetts, and no remarkable outpouring of God's Spirit occurred that day. He tucked the sermon manuscript away, and there was a revival going on. George Whitfield was preaching, and there was a revival beginning in the colonies in the 1730s. And Jonathan Edwards was invited to preach at Enfield, a little bit further away from where he lived. So he and some other pastors got on horseback and rode to Enfield. And my wife and I actually went to Enfield, where it is now. We actually stood in the very spot where he preached this sermon. There's no building standing anymore. It's just a field really next to some other buildings. But I got to stand right, there's a, there's a little stone there where this sermon was given. I, I had to go there myself. I wanted to see this for myself. And we got to stand at that very spot. So Edwards and some of his pastors went to Enfield. And a revival had been breaking out in some other towns around the area. There had been 
uh, just an awakening of a sense of eternity and the reality of heaven and hell, and people were just crying out for salvation, and some genuine conversions were starting to happen. People were being transformed. They were being released of their guilt. They were giving new love for Christ, new love for His Word. People were staying together to talk about Scripture late into the night because they could not get enough of what God was doing. But infield was not that way. It was, quote, dull and lifeless to many of the preachers who were going there. And there was great concern for the city. And so Edwards went. And Edwards was not known for being a compelling, dramatic speaker. He was more monotone in his speaking, but his words were absolutely captivating. And when Edwards began to preach, he started speaking about hell. And one, one biographer said, in Edwards' day, Hell was as real a place as China is. In other words, it was just, we just know it exists. You may not have been there yourself, but we know it is real. It was assumed. But the problem was people did not sense the reality and the urgency of hell. So Edwards preached that sermon. And in that sermon, here's one of the lines that you hear in that sermon. He says, speaking to unbelievers in the room, he says this, do you understand that God is under no special obligation or promise to keep you alive one minute longer as you sit under His condemnation and just wrath? He says, do you know that there's not one reason why since you went to bed last night, God has not let you drop into the pit of hell except for His sheer pleasure and mercy? He says, do you know since you got up out of bed this morning and came to this church service, there's not one reason why you have not dropped into hell except God's sheer mercy, under no obligation to keep you alive. And then he said this, even as you sit in a service of worship with a heart that is in no way fit for this moment, there is not one reason you can give for why God does not drop you into the pit of hell, which is what your sins deserve, except his sheer unmerited mercy. And as he went on like this for a time, all of a sudden, the room became extraordinarily serious and sober as he began to preach. The spirit began moving, conviction fell. As, as he came in, we were told by pastors there that they were thoughtless and vain when he entered the service. But in the middle of the sermon, people began to cry out, visibly shaken, and they began to say things out loud. Another pastor recorded this, oh no, I am going to hell, someone cried out. Someone said, Who, how can I be saved from my sins? In the middle of the service, Edwards had to actually stop and say, I, I need you to actually be quiet because I need to finish my sermon. And he continued preaching. At a certain point, Edwards could not finish the sermon because there was such a tumult in the room of people being shaken over the gravity of their sinfulness, and they were calling out for Christ. He dismissed the service. They sang an affecting hymn, and then the ministers went among the people to pray with them. And it says that that night, several individuals seemed to have been truly converted. And they said that they went from a countenance of terror to a countenance of peace and joy at the end of that very service. But at the end of that sermon, I don't know if he actually got to the end of his sermon, but however far he got near the end of his sermon, he has this amazing line where he says, after he speaks about hell for 40 minutes, he says this, but today the door of mercy has been flung wide open and Jesus beckons sinners to come to him and to receive forgiveness and transformation and new life and he will give it to you even right now. If you are listening right now, and maybe you would say in your heart of hearts, you know, I've been putting this off. You know, outwardly, I might look like I'm going through the motions. Inwardly, I know I am not in a good place with the Lord. I'm not even sure I know the Lord. If, if that's where you would be right now, I, I would urge you with absolute seriousness to say, speak to the Lord and say, Lord, if I am not a believer, please show me that and please lead me to Christ. And if I'm a believer, please give me the assurance of my salvation, please open up the floodgates of mercy and assure me 
Give me a love for holiness, a love for your word, a love for the things of God, and please put me on the right path, the narrow path that leads to life. So there are two ways spread out before us. The broad way, we walk from birth. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned every one of us to his own way. That's the broad way. And the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity of us all. See, the broad path is easy. It's the path of least resistance. The broad path is the path that you just naturally follow. It goes with the crowd. It follows whatever is popular in the culture. It avoids persecution for righteousness' sake at work or wherever, at school. It's as easy as drifting. I want you to turn to the right to Hebrews chapter 2. A few books to the right to Hebrews chapter 2. Listen to the warning in Hebrews chapter 2. Chapter 1 is just painted a picture of the glory of Jesus. He's the radiance of God's glory. He upholds the universe by the word of His powers, etc. Now look at chapter 2. This is the first command in the book of Hebrews. Chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, which is the gospel of Jesus, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience, this is in the Old Testament, received a just retribution, how shall we escape, now in the New Testament, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Now, do you hear that? What does it take to be lost? All it takes is neglecting our great salvation. If we simply neglect what we know of Jesus, and we harden our hearts against the truth, we will naturally begin to drift away, verse 1. This is, I know this is an intense quote. This is from Charles Spurgeon. He said this, Spurgeon said, the mere neglect of salvation is enough to damn you. That's Charles Spurgeon. Merely neglecting Jesus Merely ignoring Him, filling our heart and life with other things, the cares of this world, money, riches, our reputation, all these different trinkets and things. We just fill our mind and heart with these other things. We begin slowly to ignore Jesus, and what happens? Our heart begins to drift away. The broad path is easy. It goes with the current. The current just pulls us along. There's no resistance. Everyone's saying the same thing. We just float with the crowd down the stream, not knowing that destruction Awaits. Jesus says in Luke 6, 26, Woe to you when all speak well of you, for so their fathers did to the false prophets. Let's move to the narrow path. You can turn back to Matthew chapter 7. The narrow path. You remember before Christians were ever called Christians? Remember Antioch, the non-believers, made fun of Christians, and so they said, well, we need to call you guys little, little Christs, right? We're going to call you Christians, and they became a word of derision, and then it turned into a word, a badge of honor. And First Peter says, if you are mocked for being a Christian, glorify God in that name. But before they were called Christians, remember in chapter, Acts chapter 9, Christians were called what? Followers of the way. That's an amazing thing to call us. 
Followers of the way. The way is mentioned over and over and over in the early church, in the early chapters of Acts. Why? Because that's what they were known for. They were following the narrow way. They were following Jesus on the narrow path. The Christians were the followers of the way. This comes from Isaiah 35. A highway shall be there. It shall be called the way of holiness. The unclean shall not pass over it. It shall belong to those who walk on the way. Even, as, even if they are fools, they shall not go astray. No lion shall be there, nor shall any ravenous beast come upon it. They shall not be found there, but the redeemed shall walk there. Paul says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way that you might get the prize. Because even in natural you know, competitions, and every, every athlete exercises self-control in all things, they do it to receive a perishable wreath but we do it to receive an imperishable wreath. And then Paul says, so I don't run aimlessly. I don't box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after having preached to others, I myself should be disqualified. The narrow way means that we are in a fight with our own indwelling sin every day of our lives. We're in a fight to see the glory of Jesus so that beholding the glory of the Lord, we would be transformed into His image from one degree of glory to the next. It means that when we are at work or at school, we work with integrity, we love others, show kindness, we repent when we sin. Let's move to point number three, two crowds. We have two crowds. Let me read our text again. Matthew 7, 13. Enter, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The majority of the world who does not truly follow Christ is this crowd here, the many. Let me read an excerpt from Proverbs 1. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, we shall find precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw not your lot in among them. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their path, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set, set an ambush for their own lives. Paul says, do not be deceived, for bad company ruins good morals. We need to be careful who we surround ourselves with when it comes to the crowd around us. The minority is made up of the true followers of Jesus. This is why we need each other so much. This is why I am so thankful for you in this room, because I am encouraged week in and week out by your faithfulness, by your love for the Lord. Isn't that true? You see the people around you. You talk to them throughout the week, maybe a text message or a phone call, you meet up with somebody during the week, and you're just encouraged by the faithfulness of other believers. When you're down, they might be up. When they're down, you might be up. But we are mutually edifying and encouraging and spurring one another on to love and good deeds. We are to love one another and to spur each other on. I think of, remember David, when he's being chased by Saul, and he's hiding out in the caves, and Jonathan risks his life to come out and find David. There's that amazing text where it says, Jonathan, Saul's son, rose and went to David at Horesh and strengthened his hand in God. And he said, do not fear. And the two of them made a covenant before the Lord. And David remained at Horesh 
and Jonathan went home. We need David and Jonathan's. We need people who can come to each other and say, I am here to strengthen your hand in the Lord. Don't give up. Don't grow weary and lose heart. Let's move to point number four. This is our last point. Two destinies. Two destinies. One path, the broad path, leads to destruction, and the narrow path leads to life. Turn with me to Psalm chapter 73. Psalm chapter 73. If you remember, this psalm is when Asaph was beginning to envy those who do evil. He has a wake-up call in the latter part of the psalm, change of perspective. I'm just going to read a few verses. Psalm 73, I'm going to start in verse 3. The psalmist writes, Psalm 73, verse 3, For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death, their bodies are fat and sleek. He's envying the wicked. Look at verse 16. What does he do with that envy? But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. So when he discerns their end, he gets a wake-up call. He no longer has envy for the wicked. I realize the topic of hell is not something people love to think about, and I understand that. I would challenge you this week to spend some time actually thinking about that doctrine in particular. Maybe look up one of the Puritan sermons on the doctrine of hell. They preach on that like no one else, and they are very biblical when they talk about those things. But I would encourage all of us to think about that for more than 30 seconds. Here's why. When you think seriously about God's wrath in hell, eternal conscious torment, two things I hope happen. Number one is you get a sense of what you yourself deserve and what Jesus took for you, which is God's wrath on the cross. And number two, it will give you, I hope, a sense of urgency for the people that we know and love who do not yet know the Lord Jesus in a saving way. But the destiny for those who follow Christ is life. First or Second Timothy 4, Paul at the end of his life says, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, it is certainly difficult to stay on the narrow path. There are so many temptations and challenges that would lure us and lead us astray. God, I pray for anyone who at this moment is straying off that path, that this would be a wake-up call, that you would waken them to the seriousness and danger that they are in and that they would flee back to Christ. They would flee back to the path of repentance and obedience to you. 
And Lord, for those who at this moment are not on the right path, that you would awaken them as well and draw them to Christ. Lord Jesus, thank you that you give us great grace and great mercy to continue all the way to the end faithfully and to persevere to the end. If we truly know you, you will not let us go. You are the good shepherd as well as the door. And the sheep, your sheep, the true sheep, know your voice. They follow you. You lay down your life for them. And you hold them in your hand and no one can snatch them out of your hand. God, I pray for encouragement, grace, and spiritual refreshment in you that would help us to endure the race before us with joy and confidence in your goodness and your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.